Um, I, I'm praying today. Uh, I've been really prayerful about this morning. Um, I was praying this morning, and I, I told the Lord, I feel like I have a, you've heard the saying, a, a tiger by the tail. I feel like I have a dragon by the tail. And uh, I've been praying and thinking a lot about what I'm going to be teaching, and it's going to be a different kind of teaching this morning. I'm not going to be doing exegesis of Scripture as we would normally be doing. Um, oh, I, I have to let the kids go? Oh, kids go. Not the emerging generation. Let the children go. My little people. Let my little people go. I'm sorry. I thought they were already gone. My bad. I've only gotten about four things wrong already this morning, so... Um, where was I? I have a dragon by the tail. I want to kind of give you a context. Oh, I'm not, that's right. I'm not doing an exegesis this morning per se. I'm going to be teaching more. Um, I'm going to be speaking to you more out of some thoughts and things that I've been learning that actually for me are new. Things that I have not thought of in the way that I'm thinking of them now. And the context for that is very simply, since the beginning of this whole uh, pandemic with the COVID, um, all that's been going on with that, I, starting then, I found myself on the other side of the fence in my thinking from some of my peers and some friends in how I was viewing particularly what I considered to be the overreach of the government into our lives. And I voiced that pretty readily on social media. And I was actually warned not to voice it so much by some friends who felt like I was speaking too much about it in a way that could be mis misperceived, which, which I appreciated, although I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, and then after that, obviously, the, 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 the murder of Mr. Floyd, um, what took place with him, and what's been happening in our nation since then with the riots, the, the marching, the rioting, and, and now a new nation in Washington, Chazistan, has been, you know, birthed. I'm making fun of it, you guys. You're supposed to laugh. Um, so what's been going on up there is, is also now, I've been thinking a lot about these things. And what it did was it, it led me initially to study on this concept of the the different spheres of authority that God has ordained. And there are spheres of authority. And I'll probably talk about that maybe next week, so I won't get into it this morning. But that led me to a study of, I ended up studying and reading a lot about the Puritans. And you guys are familiar. You know, you know the Puritans and what they are and who they were. Um, they, they've got a kind of a bad reputation in some ways. Um, about being prudish and narrow-minded and conservative and all of these different um, ways that they're viewed, even legalistic. But what I realized was how they've impacted this nation in a positive way through the way they viewed the Word of God. And actually, I, I, I didn't know this. I, I did have a sense of this, but they were very instrumental in, in the Constitution of the United States being formed the way they viewed it, the, the morality, the, the principles, the values that they established when they came from England and established New England, and what was birthed there in Plymouth, 
and, and then after that as well, in Massachusetts Bay Colony, the, the two great universities, uh, Harvard and Yale, were established by Puritans. They were very instrumental in the establishing of much that has become the fiber of this nation. And as I began to read about them, I, I began to realize that the way they viewed the church's role in the world was drastically different than the way that I have and that we do. And that I would say the predominant Western church does today in, in our day, in our time. So I've entitled this morning's teaching, The Church and Our World Today. The Church and Our World Today. And I want to begin by reading out of Acts chapter 2, a very, very familiar text that you've all heard and read many times. But I'm going to come back to it in a bit, and I'm going to look at it in maybe a way that you haven't seen it before. Acts 2, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Father, in the name of Jesus, our Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today, both from your word, Lord, and from my own heart, what you put in me, that you would give me the ability to communicate it, and that it would begin to stir the hearts of our church in a new way. And I thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Say this with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, what do we mean by that? The question is, what do we understand that to mean? Because we know the words, we understand it, we have said it many times, we've sung it many times. But the question that I want to ask today is, what is the jurisdiction, how far does the sphere, to what degree does the lordship of Christ affect the world in which we live? Is it just for my life? Is it just for my family? Is it just for my church? Is it just for the church? Or does it even extend beyond that into the world in which we live? And if it does, how? I want to read a quote to you that was written by a man named J.I. Packer. You've probably heard of him about the Puritans. And I'm going to take a look at this and take a moment. I want to kind of look at it specifically in parts. It says this, he wrote this, the Puritans exemplified maturity, we don't. Spiritual warfare made the Puritans what they were. They accepted conflict as their calling, seeing themselves as their Lord's soldier pilgrims, not expecting to be able to advance a single step without opposition of one sort or another. Today, however, Christians in the West are found to be, on the whole, passionless, passive, and one fears, prayerless. 
cultivating, this is a key sentence, cultivating an ethos that encloses personal piety in a pietistic cocoon. They leave public affairs to go their own way and neither expect nor, for the most part, seek influence beyond their own Christian circle. But the Puritans labored for a holy England and a holy New England, sensing, this is key, that where privilege is neglected and unfaithfulness reigns, national judgment threatens. Where privilege is neglected and unfaithfulness reigns, national judgment threatens. Kath and I were talking the other day, as we do all of the time. We were standing in the kitchen. It was one morning we had listened to something or read something about what was going on in, in the nation in the midst of all of this turmoil. And she looked at me and she said, what are we supposed to do? What, what, what does this mean? What are we supposed to do? What's happening? And I looked at her and I said, well, baby, I said, what's happening is that we are in the process of watching our nation crumble in some sense. Not, hopefully not into its demise, but it is deteriorating right before our very eyes for a sordid number of reasons. What are we to do? I said, well, I mean, the first thing always, obviously we know is we pray. But is there anything beyond that? And that, that whole conversation prompted me to begin to think and to pray about that question. Does the role of the church, is it to, is to be simply a people who, in their own pietistic cocoon, with their own personal faith, simply watch everything in the world around it take place with very little both opportunity and understanding of how to engage in it beyond, which is most important prayer, but is there anything more than God, what God would call us to? And what I came to realize was that the Puritans definitely involved themselves beyond their own personal piety, though they had that very strongly, because they believed that God had put them where they were on the earth, listen, to work with God to bring about the restoration of all things. That God was creating anew. That God is the God of creation. And that there was a new creation. And that they were called to be a part of bringing about the transformation of the old creation and God's eventual new creation being birthed at the return of Christ. And I just begin to think, I don't know that we know much about this. And so I realize then that what I believe that my personal mission statement for life should be, and I really would hope to say that it has been, but not to the degree that it should have been, is that the Lordship of Jesus Christ ought to infiltrate every sphere of my life. Every place that my hands touch, everywhere my feet go, the Lordship of Christ should influence that sphere. Whether it's being on the board of a homeowners association or 
or being somehow involved in the school systems or working somewhere in a, in a, a job, on, on a nine-to-five job or in an office or wherever it may be, that God has placed me, his lordship should influence that sphere. The question is how and what does that mean? What I begin to do is as I begin to read and study, I begin to revisit my understanding of the kingdom of God and its mission. And I have to say to you that that subject of the kingdom of God has been, has been one that I have been very familiar with through my uh, Christian life. I was birthed into a church, into a uh, family of churches where the kingdom of God was highlighted and, and taught. I taught it myself. I have taught it for many years. I've traveled and taught all around the world, literally on the kingdom of God. So I'm very familiar with the concept. But I have to say that I've come to realize that my understanding of it has been lacking, has been limited, has been not substantial enough. Suffice to say, initially, there are two kingdoms. And this is the essence of what we've known and what we believe and what all Christendom has believed since the time of Christ's birth and then death and resurrection is that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And when we were born again into our faith understanding, we understood some of what this kingdom means. But I have to say to you that the kingdom of God, from my perspective, initially was simply spiritual. We believed in healing. We believed that the kingdom of God had come through the reign of Christ as his incarnation and that he had brought the kingdom. But we initially emphasized that in a spiritual sense, that he had come to bring physical healing, yes, but it was because of the victory spiritually that he had accomplished. And so it was really limited to the realm of the things of the spirit. But I want to tell you that that has not been the thinking of the church throughout church history, nor is it the thinking of the church today. There are many different perspectives of this two-kingdom theology regarding the mission of the church. It began as far back as Augustine. He wrote two books, The City of God and The City of Man. Two different kingdoms. The City of Man, which was the city, obviously, of darkness or humanism or man's understanding, and then the city of God. Luther and the Reformers also used the language of two kingdoms. Luther's two kingdoms were very basically that of the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of law. He taught a very strong duality between church and state, but more so between law and gospel. And so we're familiar with Luther's teaching that it's justification by faith alone, apart from the law. That was a two-kingdom thinking on Luther's part. And then there came some men called Anabaptists. You've probably heard of them. And they taught a different variance of these two kingdoms. They basically said that there is the church and the world, and they run on parallel tracks through history, but never the twain shall meet. They never intersect, and that is the calling of the church to get as far away from the world as possible. 
sort of a, a pacifistic sojourning through life, simply awaiting the day when they are taken from the world at the return of Christ. And I have to say to you, that is a very common thinking today as well. Yes, there are two kingdoms, but they, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the church, in a sense, but they should never mix. The church should separate itself as much as possible from the things of the world. And we know that Jesus said, love not the world. Is that what he meant, to separate ourselves from its affairs? I don't think so. Then the reformers, such as Calvin, and those who followed him in Europe, believed that the word of God was applicable to every area of life. And so they didn't see the state. They didn't see education. They didn't see business or commerce as being independent from the authority of Christ and his lordship. And so what we have now is a combination, a mishmash of all of these things. Obviously, we do teach the grace of God and is, we're justified by grace alone not, and by faith alone, not through the law. We do teach that and believe that. There's a lot of Anabaptist thinking of separation from. And there are some who would think as the Reformers did. And there's a fourth that's kind of a hybrid that's become common now. It's a charismatic Pentecostal hybrid of dominion where the church is supposed to now take dominion over all of the earth in the name of Christ but it's kind of a pyramid scheme of apostles over apostles over apostles and all sorts of things like that, which is very unbiblical and very unhealthy. And so in many evangelical churches, you have a mishmash of all of these thoughts. And you really can't know for certain what is believed about this important question of what is the sphere of God's authority as it confronts Satan's kingdom today. If it's separation from the world, then that means that we shouldn't be involved in politics at all because politics are of the world. And is it really applicable to my life as a businessman, practically? Is there any hope that it would really affect education Practically, those are the questions that are common today. So there is this dualism, a secular, sacred divide, where these two kingdoms exist side by side in most people's minds and hearts in the church today, which is a kingdom that is a redemptive kingdom and then a kingdom that is a common kingdom or a secular kingdom of the world. And so... Because of that, redemption and its work of grace pretty much are limited to just the church. And I was noticing even this morning as we're singing, thank goodness now we're not singing any longer like we used to, songs that are just come heal me, come touch me, come fill me, come help me. But we're still singing about me a lot. There's still a lot. Our our religion, if you would, our Christianity is a personal Piety. 
most of us live in a, in a cocoon where our, my faith is personal, it's for me. And once in a while it gets out there if I happen to tell someone about it, but usually it doesn't. There's something wrong. We've abdicated. We have, we have given up our place, I believe, as the church on the earth today. So the, ideal, uh, the idea of the gospel, listen, really shaping culture, really impacting education, really impacting political life, justice, really impacting family life, isn't really understood or even encouraged too often, even in the church. So the present age is an age where the kingdom of God is not really even realized much. It is for the age to come. And all we're doing, like the Anabaptists, is that we're just trying to survive. We're just trying to make it through. And so when we see what's going on in the world, like in our case today, we feel inadequate. We feel helpless. We feel powerless. Because it seems so much bigger than what we ourselves could possibly have any impact on. But the early church, listen, the early church had a very different view of the lordship of Christ. And the story of redemption, as you read the book of Acts being lived out, is very different than what we experience today. And I'm going to come back and look at that in a moment. But what we see them is we see them confronting boldly the culture of the day in which they lived. They saw, we see them boldly confronting, listen, earthly authorities whose sphere they had overreached with. Because they understood the sphere that they had been given by God as the church. And when the state reached into it, they confronted it. And the book of Acts is filled with examples of that. Even Rome itself being confronted. But to begin, we have to go back to the original story, which is creation. To gain an understanding of a healthy biblical perspective of this, we have to go back to the story of creation. Everything must begin with what God began in the beginning. Because you see, what God began in the beginning is how he intended it to be. Are you guys following what I'm saying right now? By the way, I wanted to say, what, I, what God put in my heart was really for the younger people today. Because you are the ones that are going to be doing the battling more than the people my age. I still got a lot of battle left in me. But the day will come when I will not be able to battle any longer. You guys must take up the battle and you must take it up understanding what it is. Lest the church just hide away somewhere waiting until they're raptured, which is a horrible hermeneutic, to be snatched out of here so that nothing is ever dealt with, or at least surviving, just surviving. You have to be able to be more than that and do more than that to be the church on the earth. But we have to go back to the garden to see God's intention. In Genesis 1.28, I'll just tell you what he said to Adam and Eve as he created them. He said to them, you know the words, be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. So the, the, the man and the woman were set in the garden, in a sense, as kingly priests over the, the garden of God to fill it and to subdue it and to be fruitful in it. And then we know that they fell, that sin came into the world, and we have the account then of God judging the world, Noah and his righteous family being called to survive the judgment of God. And then what happens in Genesis 9, God gives the mandate to Noah anew that he gave to Adam in Genesis 1. He gives it in, in Genesis 9-1 to Noah, the same, almost the same words he said to Noah. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So Noah was preserved to continue the purposes of God as a man on the earth. And he is recommissioned. He's recommissioned with the original mandate. And then the Lord calls out Abraham. And Abraham is commissioned to bring forth a whole people who will be faithful and obedient to the original commissioning of God. Nothing has changed. So in a certain sense, you have a second or another Adam in Noah. And then you have Abraham, who is also called now to be the source of blessing to all of the nations of the earth through the covenant that God made with Abraham. The same thought of bringing the blessing of God to fill the earth with the blessing of God. And then, of course, we know the story of the Old Testament and the rebellion of Israel, of the nation, of the nation that's birthed from Abraham, failed to be able to enter the land, the original generation, their rebellion, their hardness of heart, the judgment that came upon them in the wilderness, until the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the truly obedient son. And Paul calls him what? The last Adam. Because he came to fulfill, finally, the original mandate given to man by God. To be the one who would bring the blessing of God to all the earth through his obedience, which... Adam could not do, which Noah could not do, which Abraham and his people could not do. The Lord Jesus Christ did it. And he destroyed the curse. And he actually calls himself in Revelation 3.14, the beginning of the new creation. So follow my logic here. Is that Jesus Christ came to bring about the purposes of the Father, the to bring the restoration of the earth, to bring it from the fallenness of sin into the new creation, a transformation, a, a restoration that we read about in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 when the new Jerusalem comes down. It is as though it is the garden restored where there is the tree of life. And so Jesus accomplished what Adam, what Noah what Abraham, what any other man could not, he fulfilled the original mandate given by God to man. 
So this whole story, the whole thrust of Scripture is ultimately about the kingdom of God. It's about the rule and the reign of God through man upon the earth for the blessing of the earth. And it is centered in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and King. But let me tell you, and you know this, the gospel today has been truncated. The gospel today is believe in Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's probably about 10% of the gospel. Of course, it's part of the gospel. Because you must believe upon Christ in order for there to be salvation. And it's true that God does have a wonderful plan for your life. The problem is you just don't understand what he means by that. Because it's going to cost you everything. And because a wonderful plan for your life is not for you. It's for someone else. You just happen to get the blessing of being a part of it. It is wrapped up in the reality of who Jesus Christ is. This is the true gospel and the nature of his kingdom and his rule and his reign. And so we see in the book of Acts the gospel being declared and proclaimed again and again by the early church. And their gospel, as it was with Christ's gospel, it was the rule and reign of God through man upon the earth. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God was the good news. Interestingly, in Rome, that word good news was the, was the word that was, being, was used when the emperor would return to the city after conquering another nation. You may have heard this before. Evangel. Evangelion is the Greek word. Where we get the word evangel, evangelism, evangelical. And it means good news. And when the emperor would return to Rome, they would declare there is good news for the citizens of Rome because the king has conquered and he is returning. It was bad news for those whom he had conquered. It was good news for the citizens of Rome. And it was declaring his kingship. It was recognizing that he was the king. And see, the problem was is that the early church was proclaiming that there was a true king above Caesar. There is another king, and it is Jesus Christ. And they proclaimed this to actually confront the decree of Caesar. It was in violation of what they had been commanded and said and, and could actually legally say. At the time, Caesar declared himself to be the son of God. On the coins, he was called the son of God. They called themselves the savior of the world. You can see how the words they were using were, were so similar to what the truth was of Jesus Christ. And so the preaching of the gospel of the kingship of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus and him as being the source of salvation by faith and not by political law was radical. And I want to tell you that in the early church, in the book of Acts, there was no notion at all of appealing to people's hearts. Telling them only about a spiritual kingdom. That is not the message of the gospel that was preached by the early church in the book of Acts. It was not a personal piety. A 
personal religion and faith. They were declaring another king. They were declaring the true Lord. And it was a radical political offense. There was a German historian, his name is Ethelbert Stauffer. And he said that the religious principle of the Roman Empire, the religious principle of the Roman Empire, the primary one from the days of Augustus on, was salvation by Caesar. He said, salvation is to be found in none save other save Caesar Augustus. And there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Sound familiar? So this helps us understand the boldness of Peter in the text that we read in the beginning in Acts 2. And when he said the total power rests in Christ, he said, Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name. Now listen, in the face of, of, of Rome's power, and in the face of a, of a Caesar's decree, Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so that basically was a, was a call to war between Christ and Caesar, between Christians and Rome, between the emperors, the state, and the followers of Jesus Christ. And the church declared, only Christ is truly Lord and King. And so, of course, the gospel did confront the personal lives of those who were hearing it. Their hearts were called to repentance and to regeneration. But there was also a very clear call to social, political, cultural implications of the recognition of the Lordship of Christ. Kurios. The Greek word, Lord, Lord of all. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all, was the declaration of the early church. And the early hearers of this message understood what it meant, both Christian and Roman. Acts 17, 6 as you go along in the book of Acts, you find them experiencing conflict both with religious leaders and, and also with, with uh, the leaders of Israel, the kings of Israel, and, and also with Roman authorities. They, they encounter uh, uh, resistance from all three of these. And in Acts 17.6, we read that they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting. Listen to what they were shouting. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This is why they were persecuted. This is why they were martyred. It wasn't because they had a personal faith. Rome didn't care if there were many gods. Rome didn't care if you had your own personal God. Rome didn't care if you had an altar in your home with your little God and you worshipped your little God, as long as Caesar was God above that God. Rome didn't care if you called your little God Lord, as long as you confessed that the greater Lord was Caesar. 
For that confession of Jesus as Lord, you would lose your life. This is why they were being put to death, because they were worshiping the true Lord above the state and above Caesar. When they were baptized in the early church, when they came out of the water, they said, Jesus Christ is Lord. That confession could cost you your life. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. To have uttered that in the early church's day could have cost you your life. But they did it again and again and again and again. You know the story of Polycarp in the city of Smyrna when we were studying in Revelation in the city of Smyrna, letters to the churches. And Polycarp was martyred. He ended up being burned at the stake and stabbed through. And originally they were going to kill him in the arena in the, in the Colosseum. They said, unless you declare... Caesar is Lord, we will murder, we will kill you. And he said, his quote was, he has been so good to me these 86 years. How could I deny him now? And he refused because Jesus Christ is Lord. See, this was the great offense of the early church. This is the great offense of Christians in the early church century. It's amazing. Paul preaches to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He's preaching to he's preaching preaching to political authorities, to educators, to the to the, the leaders of the city of Athens, and he preaches to them. In fact, the, the sovereignty of God over all things. And in fact, the true Lord is the Christ. And it says in Acts 17 that, that it must have been a good sermon because it says that some believed, some scoffed, and some wanted to hear more. But he just preached what he knew to be true. He, of course, found himself in front of the Roman authorities because he was appealing to Caesar when he was arrested. He said, I want to come before Caesar. And so he ends up before other authorities, Festus. And, and, and others in, in Rome whom he needed to also then speak to. And we know that finally at one point, after he sees Agrippa and Felix and Festus, he finally ends up in Rome, and he writes to, Rome, to, to Philippi, the church in Philippi, from Rome. And he says to them at the end of the book of Philippians, the last verse of Philippians, from prison in Rome, Paul writes this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul had made it to Rome, imprisoned, and somehow the gospel had infiltrated Caesar's own household. We don't know if it was low-ranking or high-ranking. But Jesus is Lord. That message had made it all the way to Caesar's household. What does this mean for us today? This is actually the question. Practically, what do we do? Well, I would say that it's very similar to what was true in Rome in this sense, that as long as our beliefs 
our personal beliefs don't penetrate into the public square as Christians. As long as my beliefs don't affect the public school system or take away a woman's right to abortion to kill her unborn child, or as long as my beliefs don't somehow speak to the authority of the state that is overreached in its authority, I'm free to have my own beliefs. But when they do begin to stray too far beyond my own personal realm, they're no longer acceptable. And the sad thing is that most of the church has accepted that that's just the way that it is. Oh, we do some protesting. There's no question. But see, what's happened is that because we become issue-driven, listen to me carefully, because the church has become issue-driven, we've become political. Because we only focus on one or two things, we've been politicized. But if, in fact, we as the early church believe that Jesus Christ is Lord over every sphere of life, over everything that my hands touch, then it wouldn't matter because everything becomes an issue of the Lordship of Christ. And it's true. Listen to me. My life would become much more difficult because I would continually be running into the resistance of the state, of whatever, however it expresses itself in the world today in which we live. And the culture has applied more and more pressure to the church increasingly. The tendency, because of that, has begun, the church has come up with more and more different theologies of retreat. Theologies that accept defeat in order to justify our lack of impact in the world. Now, please hear me. I am not spanking you in my own heart today. I'm simply trying to say, in answer to my wife's question, what is going on and what do we do? We are where we are because unlike the pilgrims, unlike the early church, we have abdicated our role in the world. And there has been a steady demise. Not all of the early church founders were Christian. I'm not saying that. But it's no, there's no question that this nation was greatly impacted by Christian values in its beginning. The Ten Commandments were on the walls of public places. Christian morals and values were in this nation, even although unspoken, affecting family life. When I was young, I turned on a TV. When you watch a sitcom, there were two beds in the bedroom with a husband and wife. Leave it to Beaver. Ozzy and Harriet had two different beds. And today you see everything and anything. And we go, oh my goodness, what is happening? Oh my goodness, how has this happened? The way that it's the reason it's happened is because we have abdicated our authority as the church in the world in which we're living. And let me say to you, young people who are in this room, unless you understand this and begin to rise up in your faith, and begin to ask the question of what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of my life and that he is to influence the spheres of my life, you will see this nation steadily even go more and more downhill. 
But what if, and I really believe this is happening, the church rises up in faith, in wisdom. I'm not talking militancy. When I was in South Africa in 1986, I was in a township, a black township called Soweto, outside of Johannesburg, and I stayed with a young black pastor in Soweto during apartheid in 1986. Smart young dude, man. Loved the Lord Jesus. Very smart, well-educated. He and I would sit up. I was in his home for a week. We sat up every night, late into the night and into the early morning, talking about the things of God. And he looked at me one night and he said to me, Rick, he said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it's going to come down to armed resistance. And he was feeding on Marxism that was very prevalent at the time in Central America, that it infiltrated the, the blacks in South Africa because of their need for resistance, because of their cries for justice. And I experienced it with him. I went with him to a police station in Soweto to receive permission to go into a black uh, uh, town, a part of the township. It wasn't even another township that was all squatters living in, in huts, aluminum huts, and it had been closed off by the police because it was dangerous because of the, the, of the people that lived in there. We went in there to do ministry. We went into the police station to receive permission, and I experienced what he lived with on a daily basis with those white Afrikaners in that police station in Soweto, and I'm going to tell you, it felt like Nazism. Afrikan, like German, they had thick accents, sounded German. They, they looked and acted like Nazis in how they related to him and to me. They looked at me as a white man. What are you doing here? I was warned not to go into the township by many white South Afrikaners. They'll kill you in the township. They'll kill you. This is 1986, height of apartheid. And I felt what he felt. Driving down the street, roadblocks, out of the blue. They would search the car. They'd make you get out of the car at gunpoint, looking for written material that would undermine the white power of their state. I see, he looked at me that night. He said, Rick, I'm afraid it's going to come to armed conflict. And I said to him, I said, Paul, I said, do not, do not, do not go there. That's not what God calls us to. But you see, this militancy is in our streets in America today. And the reason is, and this is amazing to me, I was watching some of the other day, I was thinking, most of the people in the streets are young. College, white college age people. Of course, there's other mixed races and ages and so on, nationalities. I was thinking, I wonder if that in that, that state of Chaz in Seattle, how many of them are University of Washington students, besides the homeless and some of the other folks that are there? You see, because what has happened is that only the left, the liberal left in America, is speaking to, in their minds, the young people's minds, social justice concerns. The church has not addressed issues. 
in a way that is practical. And so the street, I wonder how many of those kids on the streets were raised in Christian homes who never got anything out of the church except personal piety, who were never called to anything more than just their own private religion, who all they did was experience God once a week for an hour in a meeting, and that faith never impacted the culture in which they lived. The spheres of their life were never, ever extending the lordship of Christ. So the church is now sitting, watching. I'm talking today. We are sitting, and for many of us, it appears that our culture is crumbling around us because we have lost our voice, we have lost our courage, and we have lost our discernment. So for me to speak up on social media and say, no, the state is overreaching, is perceived to be dangerous, somehow undermining the authority that we're called to submit to. No, I submit to the authority of the state fully. We do. We have as a church. But to question when it has gone too far, is that legal? Can I say this to you as a believer? Not only is it legal, it's necessary. But we must have discernment as to when it's happening and wisdom as to how to speak to it with honor, with humility, with truth. But I believe that even as Packer said, we are as a whole today in Western Christianity, passionless, passive, and I fear prayerless. Because we have limited the word of God and its applications only to the church. It doesn't apply to any other sphere of life, to education, to culture, to arts. And when we were in the artisan, we were trying to touch on this stuff at the artisan, if you remember. We were believing that God wanted to, to have the arts impacted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we were doing things to bring about art that was not Christian art, but art that was influenced by our belief in the Lordship of Christ. When we pastored our first church up in Placerville, we started a Christian school for ages K through 6. Out of our small church, and it was an excellent school because we had a deep conviction that we wanted to train our children ed and educate them with Christian values. And it was a very, very good school, and it was a very effective school. So there's been in my life and in our ministries a belief that we were to involve ourselves, but I have to say not beyond oftentimes just the personal sphere, sadly. And so as a result of this, because we have not taught this and because it's not understood by so many in the church as to what the calling of the church on the earth is to be, and because it doesn't apply in many people's minds to politics or culture or education, people are allowed to go on and have their own thinking and, and, and still be Christian, and many people's thinking in the church is humanistic or even pagan. 
And then we come together and we sing and we take communion. But we live as though we are not any different than the world. And so we have acquiesced. And young people have turned to social justice language and thinking, which is really Marxism baptized in Christianity. It really is. But it's infiltrated the church. And if you read any of the young writers and bloggers and thinkers in the church today, most of them have been influenced through this subtle Marxist leftist thinking that they believe is compassionate. Now I'm, I'm, I'm saying it today like it is. Because I got nothing to lose. I had everything to gain with you. Because the church has acquiesced. The young people have adopted the social justice thinking. And it's permeating our churches. And they say to themselves, surely the gospel has to be broader in its application than just me and my soul. Surely it must change the world in which we live. And that cry is a good cry. But the only ones that have been giving them a reason to do anything have been the leftists. That they themselves, you send your kid nowadays to to a college, oftentimes a secular public college and they're human they could leave the church and leave home at 18 years old and go, to a, go away to a university and their humanities professor will talk them out of their faith. Their anthropology professor will confront their, their faith and mock it and so demean it that they will leave their, they will walk away from their faith. And then we have articles all over the internet. Why are young people leaving the church? Why are they leaving? Well, that's why they're leaving the church. Because the church is abdicated and acquiesced to the culture and because they're being educated by humanist, left, Marxist thinking. So we have got to bring robustly scriptural answers back into the life of the church. We have got to broaden our understanding of the mission of God through the church on the earth. We've got to revisit the original mandate. Not dominionism. For those of you that know what that is, I'm not speaking that. I'm speaking the lordship of Christ in every sphere that I touch, that you touch, that we touch. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're a businessman, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a landscaper, a carpenter, whatever you are, you have to ask yourself, how can I bring the principles of the Word of God that are to be understood regarding my responsibility for the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be evident and to be made known through my life? Not just with me telling one or two people about my faith, but through the way that I live. What do I do with my money? What do I do with my time? What do I do with my free time? How has the lordship of Christ affected my children, my wife, my family, my friends through my life? 
And that's where we start. We start with ourselves first. Are we taking this mandate seriously? Are we applying God's word to the manifesto of our own lives? Are we taking responsibility for what God has called the church to? So these things have been ruminating around in my heart, in my mind. And I've been doing a lot of repenting, saying, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me as a leader for not, you know, I, I was, and I'm closing right now, so don't worry. I was, I was the other day, I think I shared this the other day, the other night when I was teaching in Revelation on Zoom. A couple of weeks ago, I just went, oh, Lord, if I have one regret, it's that I wasn't saved into what I understand now. And, of course, I trust the providence and the sovereignty of God. I know that God had his ways, his plan for me, and I'm thankful, really, for what I did learn when I first got saved. But I think, Lord, I wasted so many years. If I knew then what I know now, if I could have preached then what I can preach now, if I understood then what I understand now about your church and about all of these things, about the word of God, oh, Lord, I wish. Well, I'm going to make up for lost time. Stand with me if you would. You guys all right? Apologize for going over. Father, in the name of Jesus today, we ask you to speak anew to us what it is you have spoken to men and women of God throughout the ages regarding who they were and what they were called to in our day. We pray for the church, Lord, in America. We ask you, Lord, to revive her. We ask you to reawaken her, Lord. Just as there was a great awakening, Lord, in America, let there be another, Lord, a reawakening by the Spirit of God regarding the truth of who the church and what the church is called to be. We pray for this nation, Lord. We ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to be merciful, to withhold your judgment from her, O God, in our day. Father, we ask you to forgive us. We ask for the church for forgiveness. Lord, we have abdicated our place. We have given up, Lord, what you have given us. We have given it over too easily. And we have acquiesced and succumbed to the pressure and the frown of the world and the culture that we live in. And we have been quieted and silenced out of shame or fear or ignorance. I'm not sure. Maybe all of them. Forgive us. Awaken us, Lord. Revive us. Restore to us, O oh God, your favor, we pray. Bring peace to this nation in Jesus' name. Through our prayers, through our words, and through our actions, O oh God, may we be your instruments as your people on the earth in this day. And we're grateful, Lord, that everything is moving towards the culmination of all things being brought finally under the Lordship of Christ one day. May we be a part, Lord. May we be a part of bringing that about. In Jesus' name, amen.